Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, head to isuencounter.org or download our student app to learn about all that's happening here. Thanks for listening. Good evening, all. Welcome back from retreats. Um, excited to be back with you guys on a Tuesday night. Let me just say, yeah. All right. I don't know what that's for, but we can be excited. It's all right. Um, Let me just say on the front end, too, to give you kind of a a global picture of ministry, the way that we see it as we launch into the school year, um, there are a lot of things that we do on the front end of the year where we're gathering a crowd, right? Because there are a lot of you in the room who are new. And so we want to create easy, open doors for people who either don't know maybe Jesus or don't know each other, just looking for community, they're looking for friends, to give them a chance to connect, Um, As the year goes on, though, that changes a little bit. Not that we don't need to connect. We still need to connect. But we have a reason. We're not just just, uh, gathered around food. We're gathered around Christ. And Christ points us toward a, a, um, a purpose. And so it's not just a giant party. I mean, it is. But it's a party that has, that has intentional purpose that's aligned to it. I mean, there are lost people on this campus that need to know the love of Christ. And so it's no good for us to sit and huddle in our little spaces and talk about Jesus and for that love to never get beyond this room. Um, So there are lots of invitations. I mean, your small group is one of those invitations. Your small group isn't just, uh, it is a huddle, but it's a huddle that's on a mission. And the mobilization teams you were invited to tonight, you're going to see stuff that you guys plan, not that we plan, but that you guys that are student-owned planned stuff that's going to start to take its own life as the year goes on. And I love that. I just want you to hear our goal as a ministry isn't just to be wide. It's to grow deep together and in Christ. And each one of those things is an invitation to do that. So hear that in the mobilization teams that you heard about tonight. If you didn't sign up tonight, that's all right. Give it some time. Pray on it. Think on it. Uh, You know, it's on the app. So you can sit there and look at it and be like, you know what, maybe these two teams are something I should lean into a little bit further. And if that's two months from now, that's awesome. I just want you to know that the invitation is there. We want to grow deep together, not just wide. So last week, if you were here, let me make sure I'm not forgetting anything because I feel like I am. Now we're good. Okay. If you've been around the beginning of this year, uh, Turning Point is the series that we're in. I talked way back in the beginning of the semester, you know, all the way like four or five weeks ago, about what it meant to say yes to God, just this invitation that sits out in front of you that you get to respond to, like the prophet Isaiah or like Mary, mother of Jesus, uh, where God reveals his plan and they're like, all right, let's go. Let's light this candle. Do it. Um, Last week, I know it feels like four weeks ago in my brain, we talked about Peter and this very first moment that he had with Jesus, truly the first interaction that he had with Jesus, Jesus looks at him and says, hey, your name is Simon, but I'm going to call you Peter, which means rock. And so sometimes you see Peter's name in Scripture as like Simon or Simon Peter or Cephas, which is Aramaic for rock, or Peter, the Apostle Peter. They're all the same person. It's such a weird interaction. But in that, we get this picture that Jesus helps us understand that as followers of him, we see our identity a little bit differently than our culture does today. Culture is, is uh, our, sorry, identity is this, this journey that we as believers believe that God is with us. And there's this quote I meant to share it last week, but I just didn't quite get around to it in uh, 
um, in the text, but there's this quote by Kierkegaard that goes like this, and now with God's help, I shall become myself. That is such a great description of the way that God helps us find our identity. He collaborates with us in it. We lean on Him to understand it. It's not just this personal journey that we're on by ourselves of introspection. It's this journey we're on to figure out who God is and what He wants and how that intersects with who we are. And if you're like me, when I use the phrase like spiritual growth, like how you grow in your journey or spiritual formation, whether we want to or not, we see it as linear. So it's like, okay, well, I'm going to get serious about, you name it, about reading my Bible or about not doing this sin that I've been caught in for a long time. And then tomorrow I'm twice as good at that as I was today. And the next day, the next day after that, I'm four times as good. And I just, I am going to grow until I get mature. And we have this expectation that spiritual growth looks like this, right? That's the expectation. This is where I am right now. That's where I'm going to be four years from now, okay? You probably know where I'm going with this. This is the reality, all right? It is not linear. You know this from your own life. You definitely will see this in the Apostle Peter's life tonight, okay? But what I want you to notice in this bottom reality is the end is higher than the beginning. As we live out a struggling toward the Lord kind of faith, we see ourselves in mountaintop moments, and we see ourselves in valleys, those things continue to happen. It is not a straight line from point A to point B. It is this wandering. But in that wandering, God is directing it, and he's prodding us, and he's pushing us, and he's teaching us, and he's using us, and he's working in us, and sometimes he's working in spite of us. Again, as you will see clearly tonight through the life of Peter, I just want you to know, if the top is your expectation, then you live in such shame or guilt or just despair when you feel like you can't get it right again. The life of grace isn't like that, my friends, because God's doing a greater work. He's doing a greater work in us, and like I said, and sometimes in spite of us. So, last week, like I said, we go back to this point where Andrew brings Peter to Jesus, and Jesus renames him on the spot because he sees something that Peter will become. And I've struggled with how to tell Peter's story tonight, because almost all the time when I teach, I'm teaching out of what's called like a source text or a core text, and I spend a lot of time in study on that one text, and that's, um, I mean, it's how I develop what I'm talking on to you tonight, or in in a given week. Tonight's a little bit different, because I was like, I really need to just sort of like story tell who Peter was. I need to, some of you, it's going to be a reminder because you know pieces of his story, but I want to get to John 21, which is all the way over here, except the three years that Jesus and Peter are going to spend together, all this crazy stuff happens that gets us to John 21. And if I don't take some time tonight to tell you some of these different random pieces that happened to Peter and just sort of story tell along the way to remind you about the journey that Peter's on and who he's going to be, you're going to completely miss how beautiful John 21 is. So I have so much PowerPoint tonight, okay? Like so many slides of Scripture on the screen because I need to tell Peter's story. I'm going to try to move through some of it, as, some of it quickly, but is, this is a real guy. This isn't a story that's just re- like a fictional character that's there. Peter is a real guy, a blue-collar fisherman who, like I mentioned a week ago, has this tendency to speak before he thinks. He's a leader. He really is, but not always in the right ways. He just does stuff. And as he turns around, there's a bunch of people following him doing that stuff that he just did. 
Okay, so the first place that I want to take us, and it's really important that you get this picture, because this is going to, you're going to see an arc in Peter's life drawn to John 21 when I get there, is Luke 5. Luke 5 is the invitation to follow. Last week when, when Jesus renames Peter, it's probably a few weeks, maybe even a few months later, that this happens. One day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, who he recently renamed Peter, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there, right? So the crowds are kind of pressing up against him. Jesus asks Simon to row him out just a little bit. So he's sitting there preaching from the boat, from Simon's boat, right? He, he knows Simon, but not well. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, now go out where it's deeper and let, let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. That is uh, fisherman talk for, hey, non-fisherman, we fished at the right time all night and didn't catch anything. In other words, this is a bad idea. But since you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And this time, their nets were so full of fish that they began to tear A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. Simon, when Simon Peter saw, realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh Lord, please lead me. I'm such a sinful man. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. I need you to understand, Peter, in the moment, knew exactly what was going on. For all the weird stuff that Peter thinks, does, and says, he also is the one who often gets it first and speaks it first. And he realizes that this is not a random catch of fish, that what's in front of him is a miracle. And that means that the guy in front of him can control nature. And therefore, the reaction of, hold up, go away, because I'm a sinful man. How does Jesus respond to that? Jesus replied to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. Okay? A little fishing pun for Jesus as he calls Peter uh, to be one of his disciples in that moment. I love that the thing that Jesus uses to speak to Peter in that moment is what Peter knows. He does a fish miracle. It's not that exciting for you or me. Oh, lots of fish. (laughs) That is just not that I see a net full of fish. I'm like, I don't, please throw them back. I don't want to deal with them. I don't want to clean them. I don't want to be responsible for them. But that was an unbelievable miracle in the life of Peter. Jesus was speaking Peter's language in that moment in the way that he called him. He knew exactly how to speak to Peter in that moment, and that is the beginning. So if I'm all the way over here and I'm walking toward the John 21 where I want to get tonight, I need you to hear Luke 5 right at the beginning, this beautiful catch of fish that happens in the beginning. Well, what does that launch him into? Jesus' ministry only lasts about three years. So from the moment we're talking about now, there's only three years till he's on the cross. It is not that long of a time, less than you'll be in college. Jesus' entire ministry So what happens during that? Let me go to step two. There's this one moment. I mean, there's tons of them. I'm just going to grab six. There's this moment in Mark 5 
where there's a man named Jairus, and he's a leader of a local synagogue. He's important, and his daughter is dying. Comes to Jesus, says, I need your help. I need you to heal my daughter. And Jesus says, all right, let's go. And the disciples are with him. This is crazy. So you, I mean, imagine yourself in Peter's shoes. This important guy comes to Jesus and says, I need your help. My daughter is dying. I need you to heal her. And Jesus says, okay. And you look at the other disciples, and you're like, this is happening. And so you're following him like, what's going to happen right now? And in the middle of that, Jesus gets interrupted. There are other people coming for miracles. And so he gets, he's trying to help other people. While that's happening, someone comes to Jairus and says, hey, never mind. Your daughter died. Don't bother the teacher anymore. She passed away. It's too late. And Jesus says, let's go anyway. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Have faith. Can you imagine if you're in Peter's shoes right now to be like, what? now what's going to happen? She's not just sick. She's gone. So they go there. They go to this spot. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. Those are the only three disciples he takes with him. So Peter actually goes in. When they get to the, the man's house, every, all the relatives there are bawling. It says they're wailing loudly. Imagine that scene that you walk up to. This little girl is passed, and everybody's bawling their eyes out. And Jesus says, don't worry, she's sleeping, and I'll wake her. And everybody laughs at him. Imagine Peter listening to that. And Jesus walks over to her and says, little girl, get up. And she does. Walks outside, walks her outside to the amazement of everyone that's there. Imagine Peter watching that with huge eyes. Being like, he just raised her from the dead. Who is this guy? Like, he, how could he be anything but the person that he says he is? There's the moment, if you remember, when Jesus is teaching and there's lots of crowds and lots of stuff going on. He needs to get away. He sends the disciples um, by boat to the next place that they're going. He's like, you guys go on ahead. I'll catch up to you. So they take off in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And there's, there's wind in their face, so they're having a hard time getting across. And what's happening? what happens in the middle of the night? Jesus comes walking across the water to catch up to their boat. Not what they were expecting. He didn't specify that he would be taking a shortcut across the exact path that they were going, which I find hilarious. So here's this, this moment that we have with them. Jesus spoke to them in the boat. I mean, they're scared to death because they don't know what or, like, is this a ghost? What is happening right now? He says, don't be afraid. Take courage. I'm here. And then Peter, of course, calls to him and says, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you, walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus says. So Peter went over to the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and he began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. And Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why'd you doubt me? And when they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped, and the disciples worshipped him. You really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. And I know that it's easy to poke fun at Peter because he sank. <laughs> like he's sinking like the rock that he is in that moment, right? You know, all these different references. I think, I think Jesus had all these little clever inside jokes with Peter, the rock, okay? And this is one of them, sinking like a stone in the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is like, why did you have so little faith, child? You were looking me in the eyes. Why did you look at the wind and the waves? Why did you do that? And Peter is soaking that in every step of the way. Every moment that he's interacting with Jesus, some of this is rubbing off on him. Keep in mind, he's the only one who had enough faith to get out of the boat to begin with, right? 
All these other miracles that, that Peter gets to witness, I'm not even going to go into those. The, the feeding of the 5,000 where he watches him miraculously multiply food. The, the moment, there's a different moment in a boat where they all think they're going to die. And these are seasoned fishermen who lived in boats. I mean, like they knew the water. They all think they're going to die, including Peter. Jesus is asleep. They wake him up and he yells at the storm and tells it to be quiet. And the wind and the waves die down. Can you imagine? Peter's like, says they were terrified of Jesus. Like, who is this guy? Watched him raise the dead. Watched him heal people with leprosy, people who were blind, people who were born paralyzed. Not something that just happened yesterday, something that for years and years and years and years, this is who they had been. This is what Peter gets to see for three years following Jesus around in his ministry. Man, what he got to eavesdrop on. It's crazy. Well, let me get you to number four. We're about here now in the journey, okay? This is toward the end of Jesus' life. On the way, Jesus told them, tonight, because this is after the upper room, so this is, this is when they're in Jerusalem. Uh, they've had their, their meal together. This is before Gethsemane is, is, happens, but we're talking about the final days of Jesus' life here. On the way, Jesus told them, tonight all of you will desert me. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised from the dead, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Uh, they don't, they're having a difficult time tracking with Jesus as to what he means in this moment. Peter, of course, speaks first. He declares, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny three times that you even know me. No, Peter insisted, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the other disciples vowed the same. Do you see him leading? Them following? I want you to hear that phrase come out of Peter's mouth. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. You already know where the story is going. He does exactly that. He does exactly the thing that Jesus prophesies. But that's the thing that comes out of his mouth. That's what comes out of his mouth. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. So just, a, just you go forward a few hours, Jesus is arrested, the Romans have him, they whip him, they scourge him, they're spitting on him, they're hurling insults at him, they're preparing a cross for him, and the disciples are watching this wondering if they're next, because they're watching the God of the universe be flayed alive in front of them. And someone looks at Peter, she says, hey, wait a minute, you're a disciple, and he denies it. And then he denies it again, and then this happens. A little later, some of the other bystanders confronted Peter and said, you must be one of them because you're a Galilean. And Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know this man that you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. And suddenly Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny three times that you even know me. And he broke down and wept. This is the fifth moment I want you to hear about tonight on my way to John 21. You ever break down and weep publicly? Some of you are like, yeah, that's just Wednesday. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, I know. Some of you are wired that way. It's okay. Um, I am not, I'm not wired that way. I don't, I don't tend to show and project a lot of emotion on the outside. I can only probably count a couple times in my life 
that I have broken down and wept publicly because I have been so intensely emotionally bothered. And all of us fall somewhere on that spectrum. This isn't something that most of us do a lot, okay? Can you sense the brokenness in Peter? He just got done saying, even if everyone else deserts you, I won't desert you. Even if I have to die, I won't deny you, Jesus. That's what came out of his mouth. And he breaks down and he absolutely weeps. So do you have a sense of the journey that Peter's been on? I mean, he, he's a fisherman. He's not a religious rabbi. He hasn't been trained for, I mean, like, this is not where he's been going with life, but he gets this invitation with Jesus, and then suddenly he's a disciple. He's a learner from, from a miracle worker, a guy who's raised people from the dead. He's watched it with his own eyes, and the end of this is such a bizarre train wreck. How could the Romans even have the ability to kill the person who's been raising people from the dead? It just fractures Peter's worldview. I mean, you have to imagine he didn't even know what to do was all of this true? Was all of this real? Was this a cult? What have I been involved in all this time? I really believed that this was the Son of God. I believed that we were going to change the world. I believed that we were going to turn the Roman Empire on its, on its ear. And now Jesus is dead. But you know the story, John 20. Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb. She finds it empty. She comes back and tells the disciples. Peter and John actually have a foot race to the tomb. They race each other there. They find it empty too. Jesus appears to the disciples, but not personally to Peter. So can you imagine, uh, can you imagine the, the garbage that Peter has to feel, the guilt and the shame of knowing that he, after he swore that he would defend Jesus, he let him down. And that's just churning in him, his emotions. And then we get to John 21. Several of the disciples were there. This is after Jesus had been resurrected. Okay? Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, two other disciples. And Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. I'm going to go back to what I know, right? I'm going to get back in my boat. I'm going to throw out my nets. We'll come too, they all said, following Peter, the leader. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He was pretty far away, and I'm not sure his physical presence looked exactly the same regardless. So he called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. And then he said, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul on the net because there were so many fish in it. Does this sound familiar? Three years later, I mean, this is the exact same miracle that Jesus started with, with Peter. The exact same, I mean, like I said, this tender way that he did a miracle that was very specific to Peter, that Peter would know and understand it. Three years later, as Peter is dealing with this shame of having denied Jesus, of having let Jesus down, Jesus is standing on the beach as they're out fishing, and he says, hey guys, catch any fish? No. Why don't you try again? Then the disciple Jesus loved, that's the way John refers to himself in his gospel, so that's John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. Right? 
And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water, and headed to shore. So Peter immediately grabs his cloak and is like, see ya, hops off the boat and just swims straight to Jesus in that moment. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to shore, for they were only about a hundred yards from shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Jesus had whipped up breakfast on the beach for them. Bring some of the fish you just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to shore, 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. Now, here's what I want you to zone in on right now, because Jesus goes from breakfast on the beach with his disciples to a private moment with Peter in John 21. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. And then Jesus told him, follow me. It's the exact same thing he did in Luke 5. Why does he say it three times? I mean, I know Peter didn't get it in the moment. He's a little, his feelings are a little hurt in the moment. Why does he say it three times? Because Peter denied him three times. So tenderly, Jesus allows him to speak his love back to him, one for every time he denied him. Peter, do you love me? I do. One. Peter, do you love me? I do. Two. Peter, affirm it again. Do you love me? I do. Like he's just writing over his past sins. Isn't that cool? Isn't that symmetry between Luke 5 and John 21, the beginning of Jesus' ministry where he invites Peter and the end of that, just the most beautiful thing you've ever seen, that Jesus chooses to show up on the beach, chooses to be like, hey, how's the fishing, guys? <laughs> and then says, let down your nets. And then takes that moment to pull Simon Peter to the side and say, hey, I need to talk to you about our priorities here. I need to talk to you about what matters for the future, Peter. I love it so much. The symmetry that's there, the rashness of Peter jumping out of the boat. I love the shepherding of Jesus to Peter, too. I love that Peter, all the way along through these three years, has not been easy. He has not been an easy dude to lead, and Jesus has been with him the whole time. He chews him out when he needs to be chewed out. He gives him encouragement when he needs to be encouraged. He loves him all the way through it. Peter's growth was not linear. It was this. It was saying a stupid thing and then realizing he said a stupid thing. It was doing a great thing and Jesus being like, yes, 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 that, that, that's what we're doing, Peter. And all the way along, Peter is absorbing all of it. His growth looks like this, and so does yours. 
So does yours. That's exactly what your growth is supposed to look like. In Scripture, we have this phrase that appears over and over and over again that I think it, it misleads us at times. It is, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's all over the Bible. It's not just in one place. I could quote you lots of different Scriptures that say it. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So then you take that and you're like, oh, crap, I'm not perfect. I was supposed to be perfect today, and I'm not. I'm not perfect that's what spiritual growth was supposed to be. I tried to have the perfect day. I didn't have the perfect day. All right, listen, you're not going to have a perfect day. That is the goal. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So John actually writes in his epistle, he says, um, and I, I forget the reference. I don't have it in my notes, but First uh, John 4, correct me if I'm wrong. He says, I write this to you so you will not sin. Yikes. But then he follows that right up with, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father as a mediator on our behalf, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So John's saying, hey, the goal of our life is to give a perfect life over to God, and you're not going to do it, not in its entirety, not by yourself, which is why you're dependent on Christ every second of your day. Struggle toward the Lord. I want to put this into your brain. God has called you to a surrendered, struggling toward the Lord kind of life. I don't think that's a word, but I'm coining it tonight, all right? That's what the Christian life is supposed to look like. Every morning you wake up and you give your life, you surrender it back over to the Lord, and you say, God, I I wasn't great at forgiveness yesterday. Give me a deep well of forgiveness today. God, I wasn't good at patience yesterday. Build that in me today, Holy Spirit. Let that be a fruit that pours out of me. Every morning, you have to wake up and do that again, anew, because your flesh wants to take over and live a selfish life, and you have to say, no, 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 no. My life is given over to you. The two verses that are here, Romans 12, 1, It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's your spiritual act of worship, Paul says. So what's your job as an act of worship? It's not to sing songs. It's to surrender your life and put it on the altar over and over and over again. It's not sexy. The Christian life ain't sexy that way. When I wake up in the morning as a married man, I have to pray every day, God help me be selfless today. Even in places where I am entitled and I want my way, help me give that over to you. Help me to be that kind of a husband today. And you're in a good marriage if you're praying that while your wife is praying that too. That's what it means to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Proverbs 24, 16, I just want you to hear that verse quickly. It says, the godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. But one disaster is enough to overthrow the wicked. So what's he saying there? What's the difference between the righteous and the wicked? Whether they sin or not? No. He's saying the difference between the righteous and the wicked is the righteous get up again. (laughs) Get up again. You fall down, lean into God's grace, be forgiven, live in that forgiveness tomorrow, and struggle toward the Lord again. You're not earning his love in that. That's just how he grows us. It's how he accomplishes his purpose in it. It's what we see in the life of Peter. It's going to be true in your life. The life of spiritual growth is not linear. Oh, it's, it is not a straight line. But it is the way that God works. What can God use in your life, guys? He can use your gifts, 1 Corinthians 12. He can use your weaknesses, 2 Corinthians 12. He can use your past experiences. He can use your bank account. He can use trauma that's happened in your life. 
He can use all of it. Romans 8.28 is the beautiful promise where it basically says, if your life is submitted, for those who love God and are called according to his purposes, he can take everything and use it for good. All things. I've seen people in this ministry, I mean, I could tell a lot of stories. Let me just give you a couple generalizations, mostly because I can't be specific with this. But for example, we've had people who come out of really deep and terrible family trauma in our ministry. They come to camp, they come to college, and they, like, they, they confide in another human that they have come out of a situation of abuse. And I've heard multiple times, you guys, this isn't one time, lots of times someone say, I want God to be able to use this. I don't think that ever is possibly going to happen. This just hurts too much. And they give it over to God. And you guys, set the stopwatch, because six months later, suddenly there's someone in their small group who's walking through that same trauma. And their experience that they have been trying to walk through, they're not even full, they're not healed themselves but suddenly they can grab someone else by the hand and they can say, me too. Me too, let's walk this path together. And you see God's redemption start to work between the two of them, holding hands, chasing that together, all things he can use. I've seen people who are like, I, I've been struggling with a pornography addiction for a decade. I don't even know what life is like without it. It's like that's all I can remember. That's the way that my brain is wired and they lean into healing in some of those areas, and suddenly three months later, they're not just chasing healing, they're bringing someone else with them. I see that all the time in you guys. What can God use in you? All things. All things. That's what he can and what he will use. So what will Peter be doing after this? (laughs) Oh, it gets crazy. You guys, after he meets the resurrected Jesus, after he gets the Holy Spirit in him, in Acts 2, it's like he's a completely different beast. This dude, and it's just weeks that separate those things. This guy who would not admit to knowing Jesus is preaching to thousands. The same religious leaders who got Jesus killed are looking at Peter saying, hey, you better stop preaching. And he's like, "Mm, probably not. And he keeps preaching. And in Acts 4, it says that they look at each other and they say, they, say we didn't, we, they recognize they're teaching with such authority, and yet these are unschooled and ordinary men. They're shocked by it. What I'm most excited to show you, though, is 1 Peter 5. Because of all the stuff that Jesus taught Peter all the way along the line, In John 21, when he says, hey, Peter, let me remind you of what our priority is here. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs. He knows that Peter's a pretty selfish and uh, impetuous guy. He just leaps before he thinks. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs, look after my flock. Peter will live about 30 more years, maybe 25 Bible doesn't tell us this is church history that's talking here. We have some old historians who wrote about the life and death of the apostles. And a couple years before he dies, Peter will write his own letters, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. So what does an older Peter write about to the church? Here's what he writes about. As a fellow elder, I appeal to you Care for the flock that God's entrusted to you. 
watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you'll get out of it, but because you're eager to serve God. Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care. Lead them by your own good example. And when the great shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. You guys, 30 years later, John 21, that moment with, with, with Jesus on the beach is still ringing in Peter's ears. Peter, feed my sheep, tend to the flock. This is what a good leader does. Do that. And when Peter himself is about to die, what words does he leave to the church? Care for the flock. Care for the flock, friends. Care for the flock. And Nero, Emperor Nero, a year and a half later, will crucify Peter upside down. The upside down part is by Peter's request because he said he wasn't worthy to die in the same way that Jesus was. This is not the same human. This is not the same human that we saw way back when. Way, way back at the beginning when Jesus looked at him and said, oh, no, 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 no. Your name isn't Simon. You're the rock. You just aren't that yet. And I'll build that in you. Same invitation goes out to you tonight, friends. I don't know what the end result will look like. I don't know the new name that God has for you. I don't know exactly what he's inviting you toward, but I can tell you in that journey, that wavy, bendy, weird journey that he's taking you on, he'll take you there. And just like Peter did eventually arrive, it took a while, so will you. If you live a surrendered, struggling toward the Lord kind of faith, that's what God calls us to together, and that's what we're chasing this year as a group. Let's pray. Father, it's humbling that you would invite us on that kind of a journey. And thank you for not hiding all of the, the pitfalls that Peter fell into, the verbal stumblings that just seemed to come out of his mouth all the time. Thank you, they're just recorded plainly in Scripture. Because I relate, Jesus, to taking two steps forward one day and one step back another day. And uh, thank you for your grace and your forgiveness that we live in create something in us we couldn't create in ourselves, Lord. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening. Find out more about Encounter and ways to get involved at isuencounter.org.